Welcome to the Man Overseas Podcast. I was talking to a friend of mine recently who was trying to decide between two job candidates. And the first thing I said to him, of course, was ask about habits. That's something that Matt Ori and I talked about in his podcast. But secondly, I always suggest that people find out if they played sports or not. And the reason is because you'll often find that those who played sports for a long time, which implies that they played at a high level, right, if they played for a long time, those people tend to have great habits and they're typically comfortable working as part of a team. They're coachable. They've dealt with lots of failure and a lot of times developed an uncommon resilience. My guest today is Michael Dalbar. He and I met while playing college baseball at Nichols State University. We're coming to you today from Salzburg, Austria, which is one of the more beautiful cities in the, in the world, in my opinion. So we met in college played baseball together, and he earned a bachelor's degree and an MBA at Nichols. And we shared a love of Lil Wheezy back then. <laughs> I think I'm still a big fan of Lil Wayne. I think he's super creative. And then if our busy schedules permitted while we were in college, then we would wear our dancing shoes to, um, to the library. <laughs> and the library, of course, was a bar. Michael grew up the oldest of three boys in Plaquemine, Louisiana. He now works as a relationship manager, serving all of his clients commercial needs so he works with business owners to help them get loans and he's very successful but he's not he's more than just a resume he's also um i respect him as much as any friend that i have because he went through a tough divorce which we'll talk about and he's now a single parent who has joint custody of his special needs daughter and we'll talk about that too so delbar welcome to the podcast man how are you thank you so much for having me i am great cool how was the flight over here from new orleans a little challenging. Long 17 hours total travel time. Sat on a plane in Washington, D.C. for two hours with no air conditioning, waiting for the go-ahead to take off. But I had some interesting conversations with some people from different areas, so we made lemonade out of lemons. Last night when you texted me and said you were taking off from D.C., I, I looked at Miriam and I said, can you believe that Dalbar is on his way here? He's already made the flight to D.C. and we haven't gone to bed yet, so it must have been about 9 p.m. here. And I was meeting you the next morning at 11 a.m. And I just couldn't believe it. And she said, yeah, I go through that, too. When you leave me and I'm in Houston, you'll tell me that you're in Madrid and I've already gone to sleep and waking up and woken up and eaten breakfast that next day. And so it's just crazy. The perception of time when you're traveling or when somebody else is traveling that you're meeting. It's just crazy. So what do you think of Salzburg so far? Very, very pretty. I love the mountains. Kind of reminds me a little bit of Asheville, North Carolina, which is where my middle brother lives. And I'm looking forward to seeing the rest of the city. And I know that you were married for many years. How long were you married? I was in a relationship with my ex-wife for 13 years. I think we were married right at about seven and a half. Wow. Okay. So I knew your wife in college. She played volleyball. And tennis. Oh, at Nichols State? At Nichols. After wow. we were done playing baseball, she went and played one year at Tennis got a tennis scholarship. Do you know that I tried to run track at Nichols while I was playing baseball and Coach Parker wouldn't let me? Really? All I wanted to do, they needed somebody for the 50-yard uh, dash, and I thought that I would kill that. Yeah. And so I walked in his office and I said, Coach, they have a spot on the track team. And he said, no, like before I could even ask. Wow. <laughs> yeah. What a, what a cock. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So did your divorce come suddenly and unexpectedly? It did. Yeah. Um, actually, so it was about five years ago. And Sherry and I always had in my mind what we thought was a great relationship. And we got along well. And one day, actually, I found out that she had taken an interest in women. And from that point, we had a conversation. I found out some things that you never want to find out about what she was doing behind my back. And we ultimately decided that logistically our marriage would not work if she chose to be with women. Wow. And it's so, wow. Is that what she decided? It is. I've never been told that story. Yeah. <laughs> I knew I knew what had happened, but you never went into detail. So tell me about how you felt when you first found out that she was into women. It's interesting, you know, when you find out and you hear something like that, for me, it was more of denial. It was more of, you hear stories of women being curious. It's a lot more common for women to be curious with uh, curious sexually with other women than it is for men. And I'm, maybe there are men out there that are curious in that way, but I thought it was more of just her exploring a little bit. And I denied it at first. And we actually tried to work on our relationship for about two or three weeks. 
we talked pretty much every day after we would put our daughter to bed and just trying to reconnect. And um, I remember one moment I specifically put my daughter to bed early and asked her to join me outside as we went outside and just laid on our back deck and looked up at the stars just to uh, talk. And she basically told me at that point, this is not a phase. I am 100% gay and I can't be with you anymore. And so that was tough to hear. And at that point, I still didn't believe it, but I also knew that I had given everything that I could because that was the first thing is when I found out some of the things she was doing, I talked to her about it and basically, again, just thought it was curiosity and told her that I did not want my marriage to break up and that I was willing to do whatever I could to keep things together. Well, at this point, it was three weeks later. We had talked every single day. At that point, I knew I had given everything I could to keep my family together and I had no other option. And at that point, I went into, okay, the emotions are gone. Now it's time to move forward. This is what you have to do for your well-being and your daughter's. And is she married to a woman now? She is getting married next month, actually. I could not be happier for her. I could not be happier for the woman she's marrying who will be joining Team Jolie. Mm. Jolie is my daughter's name, and we always state that Team Jolie, no matter what, we are Team Jolie. She is no longer my wife, but we are always and will be Team Jolie. And I'm very glad that her partner has been and will continue to be a part of Jolie's life. I'm very happy for them. and. Anastasia treats my daughter like her own. So, Was your wife conflicted through the years or did this really come suddenly? Did you ever ask about when did you start to get these feelings for women? I did. And I think it was actually just really sudden. She seems to think it was maybe suppressed within her. Um, but really and truly, after I asked that question, I had already made up my mind that I had done all that I could do. So the why or how long the feelings were, or somewhat irrelevant in that I knew what we had to do and what I had to do. Mm. Would it have been more heart-wrenching if it was a man? That a lot of my friends have asked me that, and I do think so. I, I know myself, and I'd like to think I'm a pretty confident person, and I think it would have been much more challenging if it would have been another man. There's so many more things you have to deal with is that man going to try and replace me in my daughter's life? Do I have to picture another man being with what my was my wife? And let's face it, a lot of guys fantasize about women on women. So um, that being said, I think, yes, it would have been a lot more difficult. You said a lot of guys fantasize about that. Is that something that you ever tried to work within that kind of context? No, I didn't. For me, it was she was my wife and nothing about I was already in my mind. I had been betrayed, so why would I want to participate in that betrayal? I don't think my mental capacity could have handled that. Mm. But it's it's something you never suspected through all the years that you were together? Not once, ever. Wow. Is she marrying the woman that she was involved with? No. 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 Interesting. Let's talk about your career, because you're a successful banker. How long have you been in banking? 15 years. 15 years. At what point did you decide to be a banker? It's an interesting question. I remember when I was getting my MBA, having a conversation with a buddy and telling him I still didn't know what I wanted to do. I was now, it took me seven years to get my master's and my bachelor's. My first year of college, I went to Kansas at a junior college and played baseball there. So some things didn't transfer and so on and so forth. But I remember telling my buddy when I was in graduate school, I still don't know what I want to do after six or seven years in college. But I know I don't want to do finance because I hate it. And I know I don't want to do sales and I'm doing financial sales. <laughs> so after having that conversation with him, the thing that really attracted me to sales, which other people brought to my attention, is that I love talking. I love interacting with people. And um, finance was something I found challenging in the beginning. I think we all do. But once I got a hang of it and I was able to put some of the skills that I had in regards to building relationships it was a natural fit. And when I began, I started with Wells Fargo. Uh, for six and a half years, I did consumer lending. Now I do commercial lending with business owners. This was consumer lending. And so interestingly enough, did that through the mortgage crisis of 2008. So it's got some interesting and funny stories there just in regards to when you're on the front lines and understanding that 
you can call the appraiser directly and the appraiser knows what the refinance value is and all these other things that go along with it and the, um, the backside effects it has on the economy. So it's interesting to go through that. Yeah, I went through a little bit of that too. So I was selling real estate in 2007, 8, and 9. And there were times when I couldn't convince someone to purchase a house or, or couldn't talk them out of buying a house, even though the mortgage payment would be 40% of their net income. Because they believed that since homes had always historically appreciated, that it would continue that way. And so I'm trying to do the right thing for the client, act in their best interests, and say, I wouldn't buy this house if I were you. And I always had a long-term view. If I, if I look out for them, then, you know, it's sort of like on the last few podcasts, I, I think Matt Ori and both Josh Lusky said that you have to give to get. And so I always took the mindset that if I talk these people out of buying a house when it's not right for them, five, 10 years from now, they'll buy a house from me when it is right for them. I wasn't successful all the time. In fact, it was very rare that I was successful in talking people out of buying houses that they shouldn't have bought. And some of them ended up in foreclosure. And one of them in particular even blamed me. But I know what you're talking about, especially as it pertains to refinancing, because it happened all the time where people or appraisers knew what the home would sell for and their appraisal would magically arrive at the contracted price to buy the house. Is that what you're referring to? That, that along with several things. I mean, you had, um, to your point earlier, you know, stated income loans. So um, you had those things that were going on. You had ARM rates, which are adjustable rate mortgages. So you've got inflated values, locking in the rate for three years. Regulations come into effect. So the appraiser who was able to get that magical value three years ago, now gets a objective value because of the regulations. You've got someone whose rate is now being adjusted. Um, where were they in regards to the loan to value on that? So not only were we doing ORM rates, we also were very aggressive on the loan to value that we would lend out. In certain cases, we would actually do up to 110% loan to value on homes. Wow. Did your income take a hit in 0809? Um. Actually, no, it did not. Um, the market that I was working in, uh, which was the Thibodeau, Homa area, was still doing pretty well in oil and gas. I believe Warren Buffett's third largest holding is Wells Fargo. I'm curious, were you there when they were opening a bunch of checking accounts and got in trouble with? So, so I was in a loan production office, so we weren't a true banking center. So we didn't do any of the checking accounts and or things like that. We mm -hmm. were doing solely lending. So we did credit cards, auto loans. Uh, mortgages, uh, equity lines of credits, et cetera. So we weren't doing any of the banking center stuff. There were, again, no banks here in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. You have an MBA? I do. If you had a little brother who wanted to go into banking as, and was considering getting an MBA, what would you tell him? I think it's a great asset to have. As they say, no one can take away a degree that you have. I think obviously if you are if you are neck and neck with someone to get a job and everything else is constant and you have an MBA and they don't, it doesn't hurt to have it. Um, I love the fact that I did get my MBA straight after getting my bachelor's because my life took a turn where we had my daughter Jolie getting married decently early, et cetera. I don't think I would have went back to get it had I not went straight through. Mm. So I, I think it would depend on that person's situation and where they were and where they wanted to go. Did you graduate with a lot of debt? I did not. I'm, I'm very fortunate in that in Louisiana, they have a top scholarship actually, where you can get an academic scholarship as long as you have, I think it, when I was in college, which was a long time ago, it was 2.5 GPA that you had to maintain. And I think you needed at least 20 on your ACT. And I had the support of my parents as well too. Um, so that, that helped out a lot. A few weeks ago, you gave a talk at your former high school. What did you talk about? Uh, two main things just about uh, the importance of budgeting and the importance of handling credit appropriately. Can you expound? Sure. Um, a lot of these kids, um, where I grew up, Plaquemine, the average household income is maybe 44000 Actually, I did a little bit of research on that. And a lot of these kids come from different settings. Some 
may live with their aunt and don't know who their father is. Um, several different situations. Some grow up with a mother and father home, you know, a traditional home, if you will. Well, not so traditional by today's standards. I wanted them to understand the importance of budgeting and just for them to understand what a budget is. And I started out with a stat, which to me is astounding. Two years after retirement from the NFL, 78% of NFL players are bankrupt or in serious financial stress. Wow. So that to me, when I pulled that stat was, it really hit home with me. And so I'm talking to a football team of 13 to 18 year olds. And you ask them the question, who in here wants to play in the NFL? Of course, they all raise their hand. Why? Money, take care of my family. You hear several different answers. So I led them into, great, making a lot of money is a wonderful thing, but you have to have a budget. It's not how much you make, it's how much you spend. So we talked about that. We talked about the importance of establishing credit and what it can do to you if you misuse it and that it will never go away and it will follow you forever and the implications it may have. That's cool that you asked them how many of them wanted to play in the NFL and why. So that helped to make the talk interactive. The last talk that I gave to a football team, I asked them who in this room thinks they can beat me in a race. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there were only about two or three of them that raised their hand. And one of them was the guy who was just picked up by the Carolina Panthers, punt returner slash wide receiver. I believe he was four K's leading receiver last year on the conference champion, nickel state colonels. Anyway, I told them that I'm almost 40 years old. I should see all of your hands up. (laughs) But it's good when you give a talk like that, and it helps helps to keep it interactive. That's cool. So do you think that your your message resonated with them? I hope it did. And to back up, I would not have raised my hand, Bradley D., because I can attest to you being pretty fast. (laughs) There's your little uh, tidbit for that. But, um, yeah, I think it did resonate. I I really, really do. Um, And I called up some different volunteers. And I think it kept them engaged that I had a bag of Snickers. And every time they answered a question, I threw them a Snickers. Nice. <laughs> so, and I held back because, you know, I, I always threw, you know, 95, 96 miles an hour. Well, back. I remember you were around 92. <laughs> <laughs> you had the circle change. That's right. That's right. That was your killer. Um, <laughs> can you give me a day in the life of a commercial banker? What time do you get up? How many, how many hours of sleep do you get? Do you eat breakfast? I want to know the, the nitty gritty details. That's a great question. And, you know, it's interesting because I hear... So many successful people are early risers. I hear that all the time. Got to be honest, my standards of early rising are probably 6.30. So it's not 4.30, 5.30 like a lot of guys. Um, My daughter has to be to school for 8.45. And my work is such that it is flexible in regards to I can work from home just as I can get almost as much done at home as I can at the office. So I normally wake up at about 6.30. Um, my daughter is normally up. Actually, she has always, um, always been up early. Uh, I'll get more into that later, but she has a, a very rare form of epilepsy where she normally sleeps for about two and a half hours. She'll get up, sleep for another two hours, get up maybe every hour, been like that her entire life. So normally when I get up, she's already up and I love it. It's one of the cutest things in the world. She actually, Normally when she wakes up, she grabs her iPad and she'll come sit next to me in the bed and just relax with me and kind of play her mind, uh, excuse me, her iPad as I'm waking up and getting into my emails first thing. So I wake up and as I'm laying in bed with her, get in my emails, make sure there's nothing pressing. I make a full breakfast every single morning. My daughter expects it. I expect it. And by full breakfast, typically scrambled eggs, bacon, toast, grits, all the above every single morning. Um, and it's one of the cutest things my daughter typically tells me. That was a good breakfast, Daddy. And that makes my day every day. Um, but <laughs> Does then, she know it? Does she know that that makes your day? Um, I tell her, of course. Mm-hmm. But that all being said, we go through that routine. Um, normally, Jolie will um, you know, play or, or do some things like that while I'm taking a shower. And then from that point, we're normally running out the door, getting her to school. And then I'm getting to my office and or if I have a meeting to go to off the bat, I'll drive straight to that meeting. Throughout the day, I am meeting with clients. Um, Also, um, I am going to and from their office if I'm not at my office checking emails. Probably two or three days a week, I will work out on my lunch hour. And then from there, um, I will go back to work. 
depending on if I have more meetings um, and depending if I have my daughter that day, I will pick her up from aftercare, take her home and do the daddy thing, check emails again throughout the night before I go to bed to make sure everything's okay. And um, that's, that's pretty much it for the most part. Will you be checking work email while you're here? Absolutely not. Awesome. Yeah, I sent you an email last night and I got an out of office. I was impressed. One of the things I will say is that I try to really stick to that, um, especially on a trip like this. You have to truly unplug. And I remember one of my managers using this as a reference. Even if someone's on vacation and you know they're at home, if they were in another country, how would you handle the situation? In other words, don't call them. Don't text them. If they were out of the country, how would you handle the situation in their absence? So handle it. So I've always kind of taken that and thought, even if I am doing a staycation, meaning I'm at home and I just took a day off, it's a vacation. I don't need to check emails. Um, that's a way of me truly unplugging. And my company understands that, which I'm very appreciative of. And we have colleagues and backup systems. As you said, my out of office reply came on. I've got a colleague I've already talked to who's going to be handling anything that cannot wait until I get back. I like that. Do you have work or career goals? Like, do you want to be a VP or a CEO someday? I do. Um, I would like to be move up right now. I, I don't manage anyone. My title is relationship manager, but I basically manage my portfolio of clients and their needs. I don't have anyone that reports to me, which is a nice thing. At Wells Fargo, as I mentioned earlier, um, I did manage for about five and a half years, which I enjoyed that and I enjoy a leadership role. So I think at some point uh, with balance, I would like to move into a leadership role. But as you mentioned, my daughter has some special needs. So it's all about balance and taking the correct career path while keeping her needs first priority. Very good. I want to talk about your mental toughness because... You went through a divorce that flipped your world upside down and you raise a special needs kid. How have those experiences helped to make you into a mentally tough man nowadays? I think mental toughness is something that's ever evolving. Um, for me, I still remember when Jolie had her first seizure. She was six months old and then it was two days before Christmas. And I was holding her and playing with her. You can imagine a five-month-old and just holding her in your arms and making silly faces with her. And all of a sudden, she went lifeless. And I'll never forget that. And I looked at the time Sherry was my wife and said, did you just see that? She said, what? No, I didn't. And I said, I swear she just went lifeless for a second. It was like the life had been sucked out of her. She's like, well, she's fine now. And I'm like, she is. But I know what I saw. And um, the next day, um, actually, let me back up. That was about a week before Christmas. At the time, Sherry was not working. I was working for Wells Fargo. And then it was two days before Christmas and I saw it again. And Sherry thought that also throughout that week, she had saw something that resembled what I had described. So we ended up going, uh, this was two days before her first Christmas. This was actually 2006, December. And we went to Thibodeau Hospital. And I remember meeting with the doctor who was Dr. Bakuda or Bakoda, I can't pronounce her name, but she was stating with an accent, this is infantile spasms, but I couldn't make out what she was stating, but she was very clear in stating the severity of what she was seeing and that we needed to get a um, EEG done immediately, but there was no EEG machine there. So we drove to Tulane, not having a clue of what's going on. This doctor had just scared us, not knowing if this is just Jolie was tired because it was typically upon waking. We get to Tulane. We do an EEG. They call in a pediatric neurologist on call who comes in. We had taken a video of what we were seeing as well on the way to the uh, hospital. And I still remember after the EEG results came back, Dr. Afric, who is still Jolie's pediatric neurologist now, along with a social worker stating, this is infantile spasms. We're going to take you and your wife into this room and explain the severity of this and next steps. And it was like my world had just been rocked. You have this six-month-old, which you think is a completely healthy child, and all these things. And they take you into this room and basically tell you that there's a 98% chance that your daughter will be mentally challenged for the rest of her life. And 
will possibly be fed with a feeding tube, will possibly be wheelchair bound. And I think the way I reacted was kind of the same way I reacted whenever I found out what was going on and I was getting a divorce, which is, okay, react. I don't know that that's good or bad. You just react and you tuck it away and realize that, okay, one day I'll have my moment where I can be in anguish and be upset about this. But right now I've got to be a rock. I've got to react and take care of this. And so I think that shaped my mental toughness in that there's no time to cry over spilled milk. This is the situation. Deal with it. Move forward. Be the rock. Do what you got to do. Mm. That's incredible. That's another story that I have not heard. I'll add on one more thing to that. So Jolie was diagnosed with infantile spasms, which now has evolved into what's called lennox gastaut syndrome, which is a very rare form of epilepsy. She has probably 20 to 30 seizures a day, which are atonic seizures. Most people are familiar with the grand mal seizure, which is a shaking and convulsing. Jolie's are atonic seizures, which really just look, as I described earlier, which is a quick head nod, a loss of muscle tone, lifelessness for a quick second, and then um, comes out of it, if you will. So that being said, to try and whenever we first saw the seizures, they told us what it was. We actually had to inject her with a steroid for three months. So if you can imagine a one and a half inch needle sticking a six month old with a steroid every single day, that was challenging. And she blew up like a balloon, as you can imagine, on a steroid. And she was miserable. Just if she wasn't uh, crying, she was sleeping and didn't sleep very often. And uh, that was a trying time. But did it do damage to your marriage, you think? Because a lot of times... It's a good question. And I would, looking back, I would say, yes, that's one of the things as we were getting divorced. Sherry mentioned that she kind of lost herself and was totally involved with Jolie and kind of lost herself. Sherry's from Seattle originally, so I don't think she was really happy with being in Louisiana. And when we would have discussions that would sometimes turn into debates... She would say things like the only reason she was in Louisiana was because of me. She never wanted to be here. And why can't we move? Um, Things like that. So I think that's a a big part of it. So, yes, to answer your question, I I think so. And I think I don't know what the divorce rate is for special needs children, but I know it's high because I remember researching that after we found out what was going on with Joe Lee. Um, It's a challenge. I mean, I think with any kid, whether they're typical or special needs, you somewhat lose a portion of yourself. And part of that is beautiful. You want to be selfless in certain things. But in a marriage, I think you still need to find time for that other person. And I'm I'm not perfect. I'm sure there were things I could have done better as well, too. Um, But at the end of the day, we were doing what we thought was best for Jolie and we continue to. And so when you first noticed that seizure, she was almost one? No, at the time she was six months old. Six months. Mm -hmm. Okay. Did the doctor say that that's typical? After six months, those would start? Or do you think they were happening and you just didn't, maybe because the baby was so young? Typically, infantile spasms can start between three and six months, I think. This is from, you know, research from 13 years ago. But that is typical. That's about when they start, yes. Mm -hmm. So could they have been happening? Of course, you know, um, but... I would be willing to say prior to that, it couldn't have been more than a few weeks because once I saw that first one, the clusters and the frequency of them increased dramatically, which is very common. And how will this affect her long term? Jolie will function as a three-year-old essentially for the rest of her life. Wow. And so she'll never be able to drive. She'll never go to a regular high school. She'll be living with you or Sherry for the rest of her life. That's correct. Do you want more kids? I am open to that opportunity. If you asked me that question three months ago, I would have said yes, 100%. Um, As I'm getting older, that window is diminishing, but I think that I do. Mm. There's a part of me that, and someone said this to me, and I think it's true. When you have a special needs child, you kind of mourn 
for the typical child you thought you would have. Mm. You're an athlete. I'm an athlete. If you picture yourself having a kid, what do you think? Throwing the baseball with him, coaching him, right? All those things. So when you have a special needs child, you mourn for the child you thought you were going to have. So part of me wants that. And then, but moreover, it's selflessly, it's about Jolie. Jolie will outlive me or should. And who's going to take care of her? I want someone to be there for Jolie. Um, So that's part of it as well. But I also don't want that to skew my decision and have a child solely for that reason, which I don't think it's solely for that reason. So as you can see, I, um, I'm open to it. And you and I talked about this a few months ago. I heard something on the radio 10 years from now, if you look back on the last 10 years, what would be your biggest regret? And I remember you saying, if you didn't have a child and I said, that's mine as well too. So Beautiful. What most drives you now? Jolene. Your little Dubop. My little Dubop. <laughs> yeah, that's that's her nickname. And um, everything about her drives me to want to be successful. Um, she has taught me a whole new way of looking at the world. Can you expand on that? I'd love to. Um, ice cream Friday. It's a big deal in the uh, Dalbor household, Bradley. <laughs> Every Friday, we do Ice Cream Friday with Jolene, whether it's she's with mom or with dad. We do a 50-50 schedule. A two, two, three. So if I had her on Monday of this week, I would not have her on Monday of the following week. So basically every other Friday or every other weekend, I have her. Regardless of if she's with mom or with dad, it's ice cream Friday. Getting to my point, on Thursday, Jolie understands I can say, Jolie, tomorrow's Friday. Ice cream Friday. (laughs) And to her, it's a beautiful way of looking at the world that nothing else on that day matters. Mm. Today's a great day because I get ice cream and it's ice cream Friday. And it's a beautiful way of looking at the world and not sweating the small things and appreciating all the little things in life and what's really important. I love that. So you're excited to get out of bed in the morning? I am. I do. And I really enjoy my job. I love talking to people. I love helping them. Um, and I also just, I have a, a passion for life. L-I-V-I-N, Bradley Dean. That's right. We talk it all the time. I mean, there's nothing better in life than to get up every day and want to seize the day. And um, every day is a new challenge, whether it be work, relationships, uh, your daughter, whatever it may be. But I welcome those challenges every single day because they make you stronger. Awesome. Do you have any quotes that you live by? Do you have a favorite quote? I do, actually. Um, It's kind of a a long one. Um, You have it on your phone? I do. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, let's hear it. I do. Some of you guys, I'm sure, have heard of Rocky. Rocky's one through five, and then Rocky did Rocky Balboa, the movie. And there's a scene where he's talking to his son. And in this movie, he is playing himself, ultimately, as Rocky one through five, where he's beaten Apollo Creed. He's beaten Ivan Drago. He's beaten Mr. T. And so now he's Rocky Balboa, who has a deceased wife, that being Adrian, and he owns a restaurant in Philadelphia, where is his hometown, called Adrian's. And his job is to basically greet the patrons and tell old boxing stories and so on and so forth. And he has a son. Well, he comes up on his son. His son is somewhere in a big executive building, and he's going to meet his son, but his son cannot see him. And there's someone who appears to be his son's manager in his son's face, looks like to be talking down to him. Well, later on, Rocky is talking with his son, and his son basically is telling his dad that he doesn't know what it's like to walk around with a big shadow on him. And he's somewhat blaming some of the problems he has on his dad and the the shadow he's cast on his son. And so Rocky, in my opinion could not have handled this any better as a father figure in how he listens to his son. He lets him get out his anger. He lets him go through it. And then he gives him, in my opinion, what is one of the best speeches in the world. And I would say anyone listening, Google Rocky Balboa's speech to his son. It's about a two and a half to three minute clip because I'm not going to do it justice right now. Um, But ultimately, he talks about 
um, what the meaning of life is and how to handle stressful situations. And what he basically tells him is after his son has vented to him about the shadow, he tells him, let me tell you something you already know, son. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Now, if you know what you're worth, then go out and get what you're worth. But you got to be willing to take the hits and not pointing fingers, saying you ain't where you wanted to be because of him or her or anybody else. That's what cowards do. And you're not a coward. It's ultimately along those lines is what he says. And I've always liked that. And I get goosebumps seeing that scene and hearing it because in life, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. It's how we handle adversity. And it's not about pointing fingers. It's about what do you need to do to get hit hard and get up and keep moving forward? And I love when he says it. That's how winning is done. <laughs> awesome. Let's talk about your finances. Are you able to save and invest much of your money? I am, yes. I've been, since I started working, um, I contribute to my 401k. And then I also, um, as of about 14 months ago, I was able to turn what was once my primary residence into a rental property. And I have another residence, which me and my Dubop live <laughs> in. Uh, and again, I have her 50-50, as I mentioned. Um, so that's that's nice. I've always wanted to have rental income, and that allowed me to do that. After the uh, divorce, uh, we did our community property settlement, and I had bought Sherry out of that home, which is the one that I now rent out, actually. Cool. So is there some cash flow from it? You there rent is. It? There okay. is positive cash flow, yes. Nice. Do you plan to do more of that? Yes, I'd like to. You know, there's, you know, it's 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 just when, and you would know this just as well as I do. Timing the market, when's the time right? Where do you invest your extra cash? Uh, things of that nature. So yes, I would like to have a diversified portfolio as real estate income coming in, um, as well as four hundred one k's, IRAs, etc. Are you a budgeter? I am. Uh, I try to be. And you and I were talking about this a few hours ago. Um, I do try to stick to a budget. Um, but I think I could do a little bit better job of that actually. Um, so yes, I want to, I want to get a little bit more stricter with a budget because sometimes I can be a little laxed and go ahead and get that steak dinner if I want to, as opposed to, uh, let's stay in tonight. Yeah. Well, I know you make a considerable amount of money. Are you trying to live on half of that or 90% of that or no, I, I don't. But and that's, again, something you and I were talking about. I, I would like to act as though I made X amount of money as opposed to what I make, which would discipline me to live within my budget a little bit better. So you would like to live on X amount of your money being less than you actually make. So perhaps if you made 100 pretending like you made 70 or if you made 50 pretending like you made 36. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I think I think that's the way to go. So you invest in your 401k. You have a rental property. Is there anything else that you're interested in investing or buying? Not at this time, no. Um, I have um, invested in travel, which, again, kudos to you for putting that travel bug in my ear about two years ago. Cool. What have you most learned from your travels? I've, lear I've learned that the world is a very different place than we grew up in in America. I've learned that we have so much to be fortunate for and that our standard of living in America is so different than the rest of the world. Would, I mean, let's let's be honest. A poor person in Louisiana probably has a cell phone, probably has a TV, and probably has a roof over their head. A poor person in, for example, some of these other countries that you and I have been to is a much different standard of living. And just, I, I've, I feel so grateful to have the family that I have to have the relationships that I have, to have, to have the education that I have, which has allowed me to have the opportunities that I have had to be able to travel the world and see what else is out there. It makes you appreciate growing up in America and realizing that we do have way more opportunities than, than the majority of the world does. So it, it's given me a, 
I've I would like to think I've always been a grateful person, but it's enhanced that so much more. You are a grateful person. You send me a thank you about mm-hmm. once a month. Um, we're in the home of Mozart right now, mm-hmm. and. There's a quote from him that I like. He said that a man of ordinary talent will always be ordinary, whether he travels or not. But a man of superior talent will go to pieces if he remains forever in the same place. So I thought that was interesting. Maybe we'll go see the Mozart statue later today. Let's do it. If someone dropped a million dollars in your lap tomorrow, what would you do with it? It's a great question. I think um, one of the things that I just did, which I, I set a goal for myself before my 40th birthday, which is right around the corner on the 26th, actually, um, was to set up a special needs trust, a will and things like that. Because, as I've mentioned, my daughter has special needs. So I think if I got that, I would probably because to me that would be extra money. In other words, outside of the budget, I would probably put that into a special needs trust and or possibly invest in real estate with a combination of IRAs, but ultimately the end goal or the vehicle would be in Jolie's special needs trust to take care of her when I'm going. Nice. In other words, I can't make an impulse decision on what I would do with that. I would have to, a wise man, that being Bradley D has said, talk (laughs) to several people, get their opinions collectively and then make your decision. That guy you talked about sounds like a wise man. <laughs> Pretty fast, too. Pretty fast, too. <laughs> Who in here can beat me in a race? Oh, you, you play in the NFL, only you. Do you have a favorite book? I do. Um, I'd like to read more. I don't read as much as I probably should, um, but I love the book. It's called Fearless, which is about a uh, Navy SEAL who was actually on SEAL Team 6, Adam Brown. And the reason I like that book so much is that. Adam had his trials and tribulations. He had some problems with drugs and and things of that nature. But the reason I love the book so much is that I've always had a special place in my heart for our military and even more so traveling abroad and going to some of the places you and I have gone to, the communism museums and the World War II um, monuments and things of that nature and, and getting a better understanding of history in that those things can happen and didn't happen that long ago that Someone like Hitler can raid through Europe and change the world. So I've always had an appreciation for military and I've developed it so much more because of that. But this book goes into his life and trials and tribulations, which I've always loved. But there was one point where he actually just had a feeling on this mission he was going to go on, which he knew was going to be very challenging. And he basically writes a letter to his wife and his two children Ultimately, if I go, I want you to know these things. And I've never had a book move me to where I literally put the book down and for five minutes just cried. Not, I'm talking ugly girl cry, you know, (laughs) Um, just bawling and weeping because just thinking my daughter sleeping in the other room right now. I love her so much. If I was in Afghanistan or any of these other places and had to think about my children and my wife being at home and knowing what I was up against and I was doing it for my country. I, I, I can't even imagine not seeing my daughter again and just thinking of how fortunate we are to have the military that do the job they do every day while we sleep comfortably in our beds. And so it really just brought me to tears, just the thought of losing my daughter, never seeing her again and, and what these selfless men and women do for us. I, there's no debt we can repay to them, you know? Absolutely. You said a couple of things that I want to touch on about us being so fortunate. Many people don't realize when they talk about the 1%, you hear that term thrown around a lot. If, if you make more than about $36,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of the world. Another thing that you said that I thought was interesting was when you talked about your the will that you set up for your daughter and the trust. One, I'm curious how much that costs. And two, is there anything that you did in there that was uncommon? Or did you did it force you to reflect and write a letter to your daughter? So the the cost was about thirty three hundred to set up the living will and testament and the special needs trust. Um, 
one of the other things that I will have to do as well is in about two years, set up what's called a tutorship agreement, which will cost another, I think, like $2,500. And that is so Jolie, in the eyes of the law, will still be seen as a child. And why that's important is for a few reasons. One is so she can qualify for several of the government services that she would be entitled to. Also, um, for any special needs adults out there that are above 18, they can walk onto, for example, a used car lot, buy a car and enter into a contract, and they are liable for that contract, even though cognitively they may have not known what they were doing. So by doing the tutorship agreement, Jolie will remain as a child, um, which again will allow her to qualify for several of those services and not allow her to be taken advantage of. And as far as a letter to her, I've never written a letter to her, but I think that would actually be a wonderful thing just to give me fulfillment. Cognitively, she wouldn't understand it, but again, I think that would be more for me. And then as far as unusual things that I have in the living will and trust, as you've probably gathered from our conversation, Sherry and I have a great co-parenting relationship so I do have her as 50% beneficiary on my life insurance. And with the special needs trust I just set up, I will be putting the other 50% of life insurance proceeds into the trust. It's interesting. Before I started traveling, I got quotes for wills. And on average, they were about $1,200. So for anyone who's interested in getting a will, it's something that we should all do. And it's good to know that when you have a special needs child, that there's there are more important things to do than just set up a will, right? It's a little more complicated and therefore a little more costly. That's correct. So what a special needs trust does is Jolie, just like several special needs child, she cannot have over a certain amount of assets or income in her name. Otherwise, that will disqualify her from several of the services she could get, a personal care assistance, Medicaid, all these other governmental programs out there. She cannot have over a certain amount of income or assets or she will disqualify herself. By having a special needs living trust, I can put millions of dollars in there and they are not Jolie's in the eyes of qualification of those services. If you could go to the moon tomorrow and it would only cost you $20,000 but you had to be gone for six months. Would you go? No, I would not, because that's a lot of ice cream Fridays that I would miss <laughs> out on with my little doobop. But to be completely candid, no, being somewhere like that for six months, you know, I'm a social person. I could not be away for six months if it was 20000 to go for a few days to say I went to the moon and check it out. That sounds great. But other than that, unlike you, um, I can't live in solitude like that. <laughs> I absolutely could be a monk. <laughs> in fact, one of my favorite things to do is fly on 12-hour flights. I, I just love it. And usually when we land, I am thinking, man, I, I wish this would continue. I've heard a lot of people say that. And ironically, two or three people in the last few days have asked how long the flight was. And this is the tr truly the first time that I said exactly that. I'm looking forward to it. I have a lot to reflect on. For me, this time in my life is I'm turning 40 on August 26. We all have goals that we set for ourselves. And 40 is a big number. You look back at what you've accomplished since your childhood, since high school, since college, since your professional career. Are you where you want to be? And so for me, just reflecting um, on where I am, what better time than having, as I mentioned earlier, 17 hours to reflect on those things and set new goals for when you turn 45 and 50 and so on down the line. Now, ideally, I would have preferred it not be two hours without air conditioning sitting in an airplane in Washington, D.C., waiting to take off. However, uh, this is the first time I truly can identify with what you're saying, and I, I did value that time. Yeah, they say people who go on dopamine fast or phone fast, when they get their phone back, they miss that time away from their phone. I think we're all addicted to our phone to some extent. 
and it makes our lives so convenient and so it makes us so efficient and it's contributing to major prosperity i mean it's so easy to navigate through europe when you have MapQuest in your pocket at all times so i have a question for you in that regard mm -hmm. so one of the things i do on my phone in regards to it being like you said so handy what are the top three notes you have in your phone in other words i have an iphone and i've got my i've got 42 notes in other words different notes for different things that i keep what are the top three that you have in your notes if you pull them up right now i have something about jfk's secretary of state dean rusk <laughs> he was in france in the early 60s when de gaulle decided to pull out of nato de gaulle said he wanted all u.s military out of france as soon as possible and Rusk responded, does that include those who are buried here? De Gaulle didn't respond, and you could have heard a pin drop. When in England, at a fairly large conference, Colin Powell was asked by the Archbishop of Canterbury if our plans for Iraq were just an example of empire building by George Bush. He answered by saying, over the years, the United States has sent many of its fine young men and women into great peril to fight for freedom beyond our borders. The only amount of land we have ever asked for in return is enough to bury those that did not return. And you could have heard a pin drop. I could go on, but I have little stories wow. like that. Yeah, wow. it's pretty cool. Would you like to know what mine are? Yes, well, let me finish. So that was that's my most well, yes, recent yes, note. Yes. And then my second to last note is things that my accountant, my accountant needs, like a depreciation schedule and statements from houses that I have bought. And then the one before that is a list of books that I plan to buy. So The Geography of Genius by Eric Weiner is one that I'm reading now. Life and Death in the Andes by Ken, Kim McQuarrie is next on my list. And then I have The Accidental Universe, Everything is Bullshit, and a book by Barry Swartz, which I need to get the title on. And that's it. Those are my last three notes in my phone. Interesting, <laughs> isn't that? Yeah. I've never um, been asked that before. Yeah, what I love about the iPhone is it, puts the top three that you've recently updated at the top, which is why I asked, what's the top three? Not your top three, but what's the most three recent ones? Yeah, those are my recent three. Yeah, and so for me, um, it brought me to that question just when you said about iPhones and how much we rely on them. My top one, and you know this about me, is Europe 2019. I've already started my journal in regards to uh, the first line, NOLA to DC sat on the plane in D.C. for two hours without air conditioning because New York airspace was closed. Um, and then I'm going to, of course, add to this as we go. The next one is pretty simple and easy. 2D parking in NOLA, meaning I parked in 2D. <laughs> and I was at gate F-13 because I was going to be in a rush to get to the airport because of my delay earlier. And the third one is Europe 2018, which is from our last trip when I did a journal which I went back and updated a few things on my trip here as I was reflecting on what I didn't want to miss out on this time around. Um, anyway, food for thought. That is that's interesting. Yeah, I have about 700 screenshots on my phone. So I truly think that smartphones make decently smart people smarter and it makes idiots even dumber. So it's all in how you use it. <laughs> that's very true. Is there a travel experience that you've had that you felt like you've learned the most from? It's tough to say the most from because everyone has enriched my life in a different way. So I can't say the most, but I'll touch on, I guess, maybe some of the top two. Um, for me, and I did this on the flight here, I went back. You remember our first trip, trip was almost to date two years ago to Amsterdam. Mm. I drove, funny story actually on that, drove from Baton Rouge to Houston. You and I had dinner with Clint Joffrey on the night before. Next day we went and worked. baby. That's right. <laughs> and then um, went and worked out the next day and we flew direct from Houston to Amsterdam. That experience for me, I remember you were doing something in the hotel and I walked out to the corner of Amsterdam and took a moment and videoed life in Amsterdam. Nothing significant. It wasn't, oh, this is a monument. I want to video this. It was simply me standing on a corner, taking in Amsterdam and videoing people riding by on all their bicycles 
And just for me, that was a moment of, Michael, you are in Amsterdam right now. This is not that you've traveled to Florida or California. You're in Amsterdam right now. <laughs> the history here, all the things that go along for that. So that was a, a big moment for me. And then you and I went to some other cities. But the ironic part of that story was, if you remember, we flew back and we were the last airplane into Houston airport because Hurricane Harvey hit. Mm. So you and I flew direct from Amsterdam to Houston on a 10-hour flight. We landed at about 1 o'clock. I don't know if we were exactly the last flight, but I know we were one of the last. And then I jumped straight in my car, told you how much I appreciated you, and then I drove five hours back to Baton Rouge through a hurricane. (laughs) So that was my first uh, experience with that. But to get back on track to your question, that for me was a moment, just taking that in in Amsterdam. And some of the other moments have just simply been some of these communism museums. Like I remember one of the communism, well, I have to talk about two more because they're more come to mind. The communism museum we went to in Budapest where overnight, once we had won World War II, ultimately Russia puts the Iron Curtain on and they change the currency overnight from, help me out, is it Ferent in Budapest? is the currency, I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure, yeah. overnight to the Russian ruble, all right? Isn't that what? Mm-hmm. And in this write-up, in this museum, talked about hard assets were the only thing that had value, washing machines, refrigerators. So if you had $50,000 in liquid for rent, now you had nothing but a washing machine. So that to me was, wow, th- these things can happen um, and did happen. So what can we do to prevent that? But the one I have to talk about that's still bone chilling and still get goosebumps is when you and I and another friend went to Terezin, Czech Republic, to the prison camp slash concentration camp and to read the propaganda and see the propaganda films. And I remember one particular moment. There was one room which was maybe a four by six little room. And you had taken the tour a few days before us, and you said that the tour guide, because it was really just you and the group, closed the door on you where it was complete darkness so you could experience what that was like and what that would have been for someone who was a prisoner in that particular room. And I remember you asking me, you want to go in that room and I'll close the door? And I said, no, (laughs) I didn't want to do it because I already had enough bone chilling and goosebumps and just walking through those same areas when I know what happened there. And um, so everything in all these trips that I've gone on with you, I am forever grateful for. um, And they've all shaped my life uh, in different ways. That's great. Which leads to my next question. What are you most grateful for? Family, and family is a very macro term. I consider you my family. I consider relationships that are very strong, whether by blood or, you know, just by acquaintance to be family. Um, The first thing that comes to mind is family, again, in that very broad perspective, narrowing down to Jolie. Jolie has made me such a better man in so many different ways. I can't thank my mom and dad enough for shaping me in the way that they have. I truly believe you and I talk about this. We are products of our environment. And so I family in that regard, my brothers, um, everyone that's came into my life has a meaning and has a purpose. So I am thankful for every relationship that I have um, and how it's molded me. One last question. How can people find you online if they want to connect with you? Of course, I'm on Facebook. And I recently, you'll probably find this funny, got on Instagram three months ago. I'm a late bloomer. So I am on Facebook, Michael Dalbor, and I'm also on Instagram. Very cool. That's where you can find him. Michael, thank you for doing this, man. I asked some pretty tough questions and you gave a lot of detail that I think will be very helpful to people. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for having me and thank you for everything you continue to bring to my life. You're the man. You, you're you a tremendous guy and you're extremely talented. And 
I know I told you this in my wedding, but I love you and I respect you. Love you right back and respect you just as much, my brother. Thank you, brother. Yes, sir. Friends, thank you for joining us today. I know that you could be doing anything right now, but you chose to listen to us and I appreciate it. If you wish to follow my adventures through Europe and beyond, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. I am at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks.